Um, as Rodney said, I'm, uh, my name is Riley Woodfin. I am a part of Inner City Baptist Church up in the Detroit area, Allen Park, and its seminary up there as well. And um, one of the roles that I have up at Inner City is I coordinate our, our summer internship. I've got a little image I'll throw on the screen here. It's called Spread the Word. It's an evangelism and church planting internship. And we bring nine different guys in every summer and uh, just basically partner with some churches that are right there in the city and do evangelism and do outreach and um, just have an opportunity to, to help these churches push out into their community. One of the ways we do that is through the game Nine Square. I've got a picture up here on the screen for you. Have you, you guys ever played this game around here, Nine Square? Yeah, the kids, the teens know this one. It's a lot of fun. It's kind of like a crossover between volleyball and four square. It's kind of like upside down four square, but with nine squares. So if that doesn't confuse you, maybe you can follow what's going along here. But it's a great game. It's, it's sort of a kid magnet. We'll just throw it up in a neighborhood and kids just show up and start playing games with us. Then we, we have gospel presentations and eat pizza with them. Well, one of my first summers, this guy right here in particular declared himself the goat. His name's Jerry. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the terminology of the goat, uh, you know, when you hear goat initially, you might think something along these lines right here. That's not what Jerry was talking about. Not this kind of goat. Maybe more like this kind of, this kind of goat right here. You know this guy? Uh, this is Tom Brady. Some call him the goat. It stands for greatest of all time. That's what it stands for. So Jerry was the goat at nine square. But as promised, I couldn't leave this opportunity. Rodney talked about my, uh, my birthplace of Alabama. You know, in college ball, we don't talk about Tom Brady. We, we, we have a, a debate between which of these two gentlemen here is the greatest of all time. The, the beauty of it is that they're both former coaches or current coaches at the University of Alabama that between them have combined for, I believe we're up to 13 national championships. So, you know, when we talk about the GOAT, the greatest of all time, you know, you've got different ways people understand it. But when it comes to nine square, Jerry believed he was the GOAT. And Jerry was a pretty good athlete. Jerry was, a, was, a, was a, an athletic dude. He played starting wide receiver on a high school football team that ultimately won the state championship the season after this picture was taken. But I would have to contest Jerry's claim that he was the greatest of all time. I mean, he got out just as much as anybody else. He was good, but he, he wasn't, wasn't that good. So when you start thinking about the claims that people make, you know, one of the first places that's, that's the easiest to make claims would be on one of these platforms right here. You get into social media and people can make claims about pretty much anything at whim, right? In fact, I threw one up here just as an example. I'm not sure if you can read it out there, but did anybody see this one when it came out a couple years ago? It's, uh, it was called Wave. It was supposed to be an Apple update for your, your phone. And the idea was if you, put, if you got this update and you put your phone in the microwave, it would fully charge in one minute. This was not a legitimate Apple update. This is a graphic that somebody threw together and put out on social media to see how many people they could get to microwave their phone. And I, I don't know how successful they were with their little prank, but the point remains, you can make claims about anything on social media. They don't have to be true. They don't necessarily have to be trustworthy, but people can make a claim and often do make claims about pretty much anything. Now, what I want to do this evening is, is look together at Colossians chapter 1. I want to examine some bold claims that we find there. In Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. So if you open your Bibles there with me, we'll read it in just a moment. But to set things up for you and give you the context a little bit of what's going on in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul is, um, he's really contesting some claims is what he's doing in the book of Colossians. There were false teachers that had made 
varied claims that were not true. And I've got a few up here on the screen to show you. The first one would be found in Colossians 2, verse 16. Paul said this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a, a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So apparently people in that context were saying you need to have these you know, food and drink laws, Old Testament laws. We need to return to the Old Testament law. That's one false claim that was being made. Here's a second one, just, just two verses down in the chapter, verse 18. Paul said this, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So what would this be? It sort of seems like a spiritual mysticism. You see that one line in there about worship of angels? That's another thing that Paul is combating here, that, that, that there were false teachers pushing not only a return to the law, perhaps the same teachers or another group of teachers were pushing some form of angelic worship or spiritual mysticism. There's a third false claim made in the book by these teachers of Colossae, and Colossae, and that would be this, this secular philosophy. It's a more complicated one. But right here in verse 20 of chapter 2, it says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why do you... Why, as though you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And the idea here is that there was probably some kind of Greek philosophy that, that put priority on, on the physical or the spiritual over the physical. We're not exactly sure what this was all about, but it seems like there was some secular philosophy even baked into this false teaching. So Paul has a, a mess here to straighten out with this church at Colossae. All of these false teachings are swirling in this church. And the question I would like to, to pose tonight is how does Paul answer these false claims? What does Paul do to address these issues? And really what he does is in chapter 1, as we'll see, he reminds them of teaching about Christ that they probably already knew. In fact, the passage we'll look at tonight is, is recognized by many as a hymn. It has many features of a hymn. It seems like this is something the church might have even have sung amongst themselves in their worship services. This is stuff they knew. And Paul reminds them of it to combat these false claims. Before we jump in, though, I want to ask you this. Are there any, any false claims swirling around in our context today? Are there any falsehoods that if Paul were writing a letter to us, he might warn us about? I think there are. Let me just throw a few on the screen here for you. You've ever seen these things before? All of these, I think, are representative of false claims that are made in our culture today. We're not so far removed from the Colossian culture. There are, there are claims that are made that are contrary to the truth of God's word. And how should we address them? Well, I think by doing the same thing. By going back to the truth that we know about Christ. That's the best way to combat error. It's where Paul begins in Colossae. It's where we're headed tonight. So let's go to Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And what we'll see tonight is that because Jesus Christ is our creator and our reconciler, he's the only one worthy of our faith. Okay, so let's jump into the text. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. I've got it on the screen, or you can follow along there in your Bible as well. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, in heaven 
or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray and ask God for his help as we, as we look at his word tonight. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open, open the scriptures and to see the glory of Christ. God, I, this passage is, has to be among the high points in the New Testament that just give us a rich, rich and deep understanding of who Christ is and what he did. So Father, I pray that you would, would help us by your spirit tonight to comprehend these truths but not only to comprehend them, but really to be apprehended by them so they, they could capture our hearts so that they would change the way we think and that would flow even into the way that we, we live. Father, I pray that you would um, lift Christ up through your word tonight and that uh, even those that aren't believers that might be amongst us would be drawn to him. And for those of us that are believers, that we would have deeper affection and deeper love for him as a result of being here this evening. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start this evening, the first thing I want to point out is that Christ is first in both the old and the reconciled creation. First in the old and reconciled creation. We'll focus first on the fact that Christ is first in the old creation. Notice what it says in verse 15, right at the beginning of the passage. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. And I don't know if you've ever really thought about that, that phrase, you know, too deeply, but it's sort of strange to think about something being an image, you usually think of that being something that's visible, of the invisible God. Maybe something like this comes to your mind, you know, it's, what is this, what's going on with this image of the invisible God? Well, I think to track it down, we really need to go all the way back into Genesis 1. Okay, so look at Genesis 1, 27. I've got it on the screen once again for you. There it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we have this idea of the image of God, in this case being present in man, all the way back, going all the way back into creation. You know, when I think about an image, you, you, you know, you could think of a picture. In this case, I just chose a picture of a, of a sculpture. Th- those aren't real people. They're designed to look like real people. That's the same kind of thing that you have on, you know, on your phone. Many of you, if you were to pull out your phone and open up your lock screen, in this case, you can't really see it, but I have a picture of my wife, Bethany, who's, who's back there with the kings. My wife, Bethany, and I right here on the, on the front of my phone. And I ask you the question, why do, why do people put pictures or images or representations of other people on their phone? Why do you hang a picture on your wall? Why do you use pictures? It's not like you're actually hanging that person there or putting that person inside your phone, but an image, the idea is that it is a representation of the real thing. And so when God created man, when he created woman, he created them in his image. The idea is that they were to be a reflection of who God is and what God is like. We all know how that went, right? Well, the next picture I'll throw up here, we've got the, the, the apple and the snake, and we know the story, right? Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. Mankind was plunged into sin. And I would say we've not done a, a, that great of a job in representing God and bearing his image ever since. And so that's sort of the problem in mankind. We're not doing what we were created to do. We've chosen to rebel. We've chosen to sin. We've marred the image of God on our life. And so as we look to Christ, think, think of John 14, 9. It says, as Jesus said to Philip here, have I been so long with you and you don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, well, I, I, we know that we've messed up. We don't represent the Father well. 
And Jesus is saying something bigger than that. It's not only that he's a representation, a good representation. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the perfect likeness of God because he is God. Look at Colossians 3.10. That tells us this. Believers put on the, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are to be made, remade in the image of Christ because he is God. He is the express and perfect image of God. So if we were to put it this way, you had Adam. He was created in the image of God. And you have the true and better Adam, Christ, the one who is the express image, the perfect likeness of God. Or as it says in our text this evening, he is the image of God. In a nutshell, what that description is telling us is that he is God. Right out of the gate in this passage, we have a, a statement about the divinity of Christ. He is the image of God. Look at the next description of Christ that's given there. Um, it's actually not right in verse 15. It goes down into, actually it's right at the end of verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now what is it that you think when you, when you hear the word firstborn, what comes to mind for you? Most naturally, Probably something like this, you know, I'm, I'm the third of eight kids. Well, here's number one. So when I hear firstborn, I probably tend to think of Bobby Woodfin. He's the firstborn in our family. And, and, and so as you start thinking about, okay, Christ, he's the firstborn of all creation. If you take that same idea and you apply it to Christ, you can run into some really bad teaching really quickly. That Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That, in other words, here's creation and Christ is the first one to be created. There are some 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 faiths and religions out there that teach that, but they don't teach what the Bible says. So we have a challenge here before us. We have to unravel this. What does it mean then that Christ is the firstborn of all creation? Now let me, let me offer an Old Testament example. You know, these guys here, we got Jacob giving Joseph the coat of many colors. If we think back to, to Jacob's children, who was the firstborn? Reuben was our, was our firstborn there with Jacob, right? Was it Joseph? But he received the rights of the firstborn, even though he wasn't the oldest. He received the place of priority. So clearly firstborn is not only limited to the one that was born first, but can also be used to describe the one who held the place of priority. Think of this as well. Look at Psalm 89, verse 27. This is a messianic psalm. It's describing Christ, the one who's to come. And in this, the psalmist says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So this hymn here is a description of the Messiah. Now, was the Messiah the first one to be born among the kings of earth? He had the place of priority, though. This is what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus being the firstborn. It's that he had the place of priority. This would be a visual representation of false teaching. You look at it and say, all right, we've got all of creation, and among creation, Jesus was the first one. It's not the way it is. It's more of this is the, is the right picture, that Jesus is first over all creation. He's not among creation because he wasn't created. In fact, he was the creator. Instead, it's the idea that he's the firstborn over. He has the place of preeminence. He has the position of firstborn over the rest of creation. So this is our second, this is our second description of Jesus. He is God, and he holds the place of priority over all of creation. Our, our third description of Christ is this. It says he is before all things. I do believe this one is talking about 
in a, in a chronological sense that he is before all things. So if we were to put creation on a timeline of the world, we've got eternity past, we've got eternity future up here, where would we place Christ on this timeline? He's before all things. He's first. So he is not only above creation, he is before creation. He is pre-existent. He existed before creation. And I think on the basis of those three descriptions of Christ, we can say that Christ is first in the old creation. He's above it. He's before it. Christ is above and before the old creation. He's the image of the invisible God because he is God. He's the firstborn of all creation, and he is before all things. Christ is first in the old creation. But there's a second part of the statement on the screen, right? Christ is first in the reconciled creation. What are we getting at with this one? Well, with this one, look down at verse 18. You'll see the description I have on the screen. It says, he is the head of the body, the church. So in these first three descriptions we've looked at, we were talking about creation. That's not what we're talking about anymore. Paul has narrowed his focus in now, right? He's not just talking about the, 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 the whole of creation. He's also the head of the body or of the church, the reconciled creation, those that are being remade into the likeness of God. Christ is first in the reconciled creation as well. It says it more fully in Ephesians 1.22. It says, he, speaking of the Father, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So when verse 18 says he is the head of the body, the church, the church, not only is he over in the sense that he's the the firstborn over creation, he is over in the sense that he is the head of the church as well. And it goes on to say he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And the fact that this description says the beginning and puts that chronological timestamp on it, I do believe in this case it's talking about On that timeline we just had out, if you put the the church on the timeline, where was Jesus? He's the first one, the first one to be raised from the dead. He is before the church. He's over it in priority. He's the head of the church, and he's before it in time. Jesus existed before his church. He was the first to be raised from the dead. So if we're looking at this picture here overall, we're talking about Christ being first in the old and reconciled creation. He's over it, both of these spheres. He's before them, both of these spheres. Christ is first in both the old and the reconciled creation of his church. So we've sort of bounced around in the passage at this point. Let me throw a roadmap up on the screen for you because here's what's going on. We've looked at three descriptions that talked about Christ in relation to the old creation, the the, the creation that we generally speak of in Genesis 1. We've talked about three descriptions that talk about his relationship to the new creation, the church. Okay, what about this one in the middle? We haven't talked about it yet. What's going on with this one that it says, "In in him all things hold together? I believe this one points both directions. That in the old creation, the new creation, the linchpin in the middle is that in him all of this holds together whether it be the old creation or the new. And I think as I'm trying to to, to picture what this is like, what's an example, what's an illustration, one that came to my mind is is one of these right here. Maybe some of you are a little bit handy and you know what one of these is. And this is a a panel box. This is an electrical panel box. It's got all those switches in there. Somewhere in this building, there's probably one or more of these things. 
And if we were to go over to that panel box, and I guess it would be this guy right here, and we were to switch that one off, what happens to everything in this building? It's it's flatlined, right? We don't have lights. We don't have Wi-Fi. It's cataclysmic. You know, this is not good. I mean, if we shut shut that off, nothing is happening in this building from from an electricity perspective. All right. This is sort of the description that we see from Jesus here. He holds it all together. And in him, all things hold together. If you take Jesus out of the equation, none of this exists. Not only did he create it, not only is he above it and before it, he holds it all together. Think about John 15 and verse 4, where it says, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Later on in that passage, it says, Because without me, you can do nothing. There's no way that, that we can do anything on our own. The, old, the, the world would cease to exist if, if Jesus stopped superintending it. In our own life, trying to produce spiritual fruit, there's no way we can do it. And we look at Philippians 1.6 where it says we can be sure of this very thing, that he who began a good work in us, he's the one that's going to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. He's the one that's doing this work. We, in and of ourselves, can accomplish nothing. He's the one that holds it all together. Okay, so here's our little roadmap again. We've got all these descriptions of Christ in relation to creation, in relation to the new creation. He holds it all together. And here's the conclusion that Paul draws. You ready for this? The conclusion that Paul draws in verse 18, the reason he's told all of this is so that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the reason Paul has been building out this theology talking about Christ in relation to the old creation, Christ in relation to the church, the fact that he holds it all together. He says, the reason all of this is true is so that in everything, Jesus Christ might be preeminent. And when we think about that word preeminent, what does it mean? Above everything, before everything. Nothing compares to him. He is the one who is above and before all things in every sphere of creation so that he might be preeminent. You know, there's a lot of people in our culture today that maybe we put a lot of stock in. Let me just throw some pictures up. Maybe you recognize some of these people here. You know, maybe some that just signed a $700 million contract in the last week. You know, some of these people here, we look at them and we say, there are rich people in this world. There are successful people in this world. There are powerful people. There are smart people in this world. You put Christ alongside any of those, they pale in comparison. Can any of them say they're above all things? Can any of them say they are before all things? Can any of them say that that they hold everything together? That's why Christ is preeminent. None of these people have a claim to the position that Jesus Christ holds. He's preeminent. He's above all and before all in the old creation and in the new. And he holds it all together. This is the claim that's being made about Jesus Christ here. These are the claims. Now here's the question we have to answer. Are these legitimate claims? Are these legitimate claims about Christ? Because anybody, I can go on Facebook and say that if you microwave your phone, it'll be charged in 60 seconds. That's not a legitimate claim. Anybody can make a claim. Are these legitimate claims? Okay, so Paul actually comes along in some of the, the sections that we've skipped around in, and he gives the rationale 
for why these are true claims about Christ. So here's our second point. We've talked about how Christ is first. How about Christ should be first? It's appropriate. It's right that Christ is first in the old and reconciled creation. Here's some of the claims we've already talked about up on the screen. When it says that he is the image of the invisible God, and then it says he's the head of the body of the church, here are the claims that are made. Notice what happens on the tail end of both of those claims. Look at the same word there, the word for. He says he is the head of the church. He is the image of God for or because And then he starts giving us the reasons why we can legitimately claim that Christ is all of these things that he's been telling us that he is. So let's look at those. What are the reasons that are given by the Apostle Paul here? For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Or in verses 19 and 20, In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, on earth, or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I mentioned sort of in passing a few minutes ago that many people believe this is a hymn, that this is a song that the early church would have sung. One of the reasons they think this is because there are three They're really, the technical term is prepositions, if you know those. They taught me in Alabama what a preposition is. You know what a preposition is? It's anything that a rabbit can do to a log. It can go in it, it can go around it, it can go over it. That's that's what a preposition is, okay? So that's what we're dealing with here. There are three prepositions used in that first quotation of verse 16, and three that are used in verses 19 and 20. Now, in our translations, they don't tend to use the exact same words, but I want to point something out to you here. In the original, in the Greek that Paul wrote, these were the same words. The preposition ice, Rodney, Laura, there you go. And then in the, uh, the second one here, those, those came across in English the same, through, that's dia. And then down here, the two, that's, 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 that's ice once again, I believe. Um, actually, I don't think it is. Don't quote me on that. Look it up. At any rate, this is, these are the three words that Paul uses, and he uses them in both, shall we say, stanzas of this hymn to describe Christ. If we were to, to put them you know, into parallel words, we could say, that, that for him and through, or by him and through him and to him are all things in the old creation and the new. By him and through him and to him. Let, let's, let's flesh this out a little bit. The old creation was in him. It was in Christ. Everything was created according to his will and by his command. The passage says in verse, I believe once again, it's 16, everything in heaven and on earth Visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created in him. Here, so I put a picture to represent the physical things we see around us, created in him. Here's an artist's rendering of spiritual realities. They were created in him. All things in the original creation were created in him. Second point here, the old creation was through him. He was the one who acted to cause creation to occur. And our third little preposition, the old creation was to Christ. Everything was created for him. The end of all things is Christ. Everything that was created was to him or for him. Those are some impressive claims to talk about with Christ. If we're going to say, man, he's above all and before all, why? Well, because everything, he created it. It was through him. It was in him. It was to him. That's why he has the claim that he can be before all and above all in the old creation. 
Let's see how our little prepositions are used in the second, in the second part about the new creation, the church. All the fullness of God was in Christ. He was totally God. There was no part of God that was not present in him. The reconciliation, the text tells us, was through Christ. He's the one who shed his blood to make reconciliation possible. It was through him. Or how about our third preposition? Reconciliation is to Christ. The reason it happened is for him. It's for him. It's to him. So everything in the old creation and in the new was It was in him, and it was through him, and it was to him. So if we put our little pictures back up on the screen, he's above creation, he's before creation. Why? For everything in the old creation was made in and through and to him. We put our new creation church up on the screen. Jesus is above and before the restored creation because everything in it was reconciled in and through and to him. These are legitimate claims. These are legitimate claims. We're not just saying Jesus is these things. Everything was created in and through and to him. Everything was reconciled in and through and to him. What other claim could there possibly be on preeminence that would would supersede the claim that Christ has to preeminence. No other person, no other entity can claim preeminence because no other person or entity has these credentials. We could, th- we could go back to, to baseball players, football players, musicians. None of those come close to rivaling the supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So Paul takes verses 15 to 20 and he lays this out for us. He says, Jesus is preeminent. So here's the question as we we close tonight. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that Jesus is preeminent? Does that have any bearing on us? Or are these just kind of cool theological truths to think about Maybe you pull it out the next time you're talking to a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness. I mean, but what about you and your practical daily life? What, what does it matter that Jesus is preeminent? I believe Paul goes on to tell us in verses 21 through 23. They're on the screen as well. You can look down at your Bibles as you prefer. Here's what it says. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Let's stop there. This is, Paul throws this out here and says, he's, just, he's talking to this church full of believers, and he says, you were once hostile in mind, you were alienated, you were doing evil deeds. All right, so what is that? I mean, let's step back and think about that. That's not, those aren't comforting descriptions, are they? You're alienated from God, you're hostile in mind, and why is this happening? You're doing evil deeds. You deserve to be alienated. You deserve to be hostile. Or you, you, you've proven that you're hostile to God. This is the truth about our position apart from Christ. Okay, this is, this, is, this is deep stuff. This is every one of us. There are no exceptions to this. We're hostile to God. This is what we were. But it said, look what it says next. This is the way you were, church at Colossae, but he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. All right, so why does it matter? Well, because Christ is the one who reconciled. Christ is the one who took us when we were in this position of hostility, this this enmity. We're doing our evil deeds. We're actively rebelling against God. And Christ comes along and in the body of his flesh by his death, he reconciles you. He gives you the opportunity to be restored 
to a relationship with God. All right, this is what's true about Christ. This one who is preeminent, this one that is above and before all things, the one that through and in and to are all things that have ever existed, he's the one who took on flesh and has reconciled you through his death. That's really what we're celebrating this this Christmas season, is it not? This one who was immeasurably higher than we are became one of us, became like us, took on a body like ours, and died sacrificially to save us from our sin. No other person could have done that. We can't save ourselves. God was the only one who could have, and he became a man and reconciled us in the body of his flesh by his death. Why did he do this? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Okay, think about that one with me. We just talked about actively rebelling in evil deeds with open hostility, rejection of God. We just talked about all this over here. And because of Christ and the work he's done of reconciliation, now we're over here. And what's it say about us over here? He is presenting us what? Holy and blameless and above reproach. What a change. That's 180 degrees. And it's not something I did. It's not something you did. Who's the one that did this? Who's the one that affected this change in us? It's Christ. It's this one who is preeminent, who stepped into our situation, took on flesh, died a sacrificial death, and now he can present us as holy. I mean, think about descriptions of holiness in Scripture. Think about Isaiah 6. What did Isaiah think when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, the, the, the angels crying, holy, holy, holy? What does Isaiah do? He falls over. Woe is me. I can't stand up in the presence of this holiness. But now, through Christ and his reconciling work, we can be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's the work of Christ. That's the work of Christ in our lives. But there's a warning here as well. Look what it says next. You can be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, I think it would be possible to read this verse here, this section here, and say, okay, so as long as I continue to do the right thing, I'll be saved. Okay, now I don't think that's what's going on here. It's not a matter of if you slip up, you're not a Christian anymore. What it is here is this is the evidence that this change has happened in you. If the change has happened in you, if you've been reconciled, you know what's going to be true of you? You are going to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. You're not going to shift away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, hey, you know what? Because of the work of Christ, you have been made holy. You know how I know that? If you continue in the hope of the gospel. If you continue to live out your faith, if you're not shifting away, if you're not, if you're not moving away from the gospel that you heard, we can know that we are believers, that we've been saved, that we've been changed in this way. And what is this gospel? It's the gospel that's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It's the one that Paul came to minister. All right, this is that gospel, the gospel that, 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 that was handed down once for all, the gospel that we find in this book. All right, if you believe this gospel... You don't shift away from it. You've been presented holy and blameless before God through the work of Christ. That's why it matters. This becomes very personal to all of us very quickly. But I want to ask just a couple questions here 
um, to help us to, to take these truths and internalize them, okay? So as we close, one question I think we need to ask ourselves, because if Christ is above all, before all, and the old creation, the new, if everything was in and through and to him, if he's the only hope that we have to be reconciled to the Father, and what's to tell? Have we been reconciled? Well, are you, are you continuing in the faith? Let me ask that question, okay? Because, because the reality of it is, is, is we can sometimes sit in church services. We can sometimes look the part and do the right thing. And in our own hearts, I think we can struggle. And, and maybe in our own, I mean, you know, there's a difference between doubting and, and moving away from the faith. There's a difference between having questions and forsaking the faith. But I think you probably know your own heart. Maybe as you've sat here in church service after church service after church service, you're kind of becoming disillusioned a little. You're kind of like, man, I don't know. I don't know if this is real. And there's all these other religions that are out there. Some people say God doesn't even exist. And maybe in your own mind, that that description that Paul gave us there at the end of the chapter, where he says, you know, you don't need to be shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Maybe as you, maybe as you hear that tonight, you go, I, I actually kind of feel in my own heart that I am sort of shifting away from the hope of the gospel. You know, these warnings, I believe they're here in Scripture to keep that from happening, to call you back and say, you know what, I need to, I need to reaffirm my commitment here. I need to hear this warning and say, I want to be reconciled to God. So I'm not going to shift away from the hope of the gospel. And if you're a real believer here tonight, this will help you shore up your faith and move you back toward the gospel. Are you shifting or are you continuing in the faith? And second question, are you moving away from the hope of the gospel? Sort of a parallel question there. Are you shifting? You know, is there, is there doubt? I, the, the, the moving away is probably a more severe description. You are, you've already actively starting to move away from the gospel. How foolish. How foolish. If Christ is truly above all, before all, if everything truly was created in and through and to him, if he truly is preeminent, how can you walk away from him? How can, you, how can you say, well, there's something better than that. I'm going to pursue it instead. What's better than that? There is nothing better than that. Don't, don't shift away from the hope of the gospel. Allow this, this affirmation of the truth about Christ to propel you to a greater commitment, a greater trust in him. Now, the last question I have here is this. Are you ordering your life in a way that reflects the preeminence of Christ? Okay, what I mean by that is, if he's preeminent, it's necessary that nothing else is. And there are so many things in our life that we can pursue outside of Christ. We can pursue, you know, I, a lot of times I talk to people about these things with, with teenagers, and it's like, you know, you can pursue friendships or being popular. You know, I don't know that adults are so far removed from that. You know, I think we can want to be popular at our workplace. We can want to be popular uh, in our families. We can want to be the one that's perceived as successful. And that can become the thing that we really tune our heart toward, is achieving that success. Perhaps success for you is, is maybe it's more rooted in your family. And it's like, I want to have this picture-perfect family. I want to have a family that looks the part. We got our white picket fence. We got our, you know, our yellow lab. We got, you know, the, the kids are great musicians, great athletes. And, I, and you work hard to create this manicured perfection and image for your family. And maybe that's, that's the thing that is most important to you. Um, perhaps it's, it's your finances and you work really hard to keep your finances in order. Any number of things can compete in this life for the place of preeminence in your affections. 
which of those can compare to Christ? He's above all. He's before all. He's in the old creation and in the new creation. Everything is, that was created, it was created in and through and to him. Everything that's been reconciled has been reconciled in and through and to him. In a word, he's preeminent. Don't pursue anything else. Don't spend your affections on lesser things. Let Christ be central. And that could show up any number of ways. What's your commitment to him in, in your local church? Are you, are you pursuing the things that Christ cares about as he builds his church? The, the church that he gave his life for, that he loved so deeply that he would give his life for his church? Do you, do you care about your church? Do you, do you, do you spend yourself in, the, in this context here at Calvary Baptist Church in Finley, Ohio? Um, do, you, do you spend your time getting to know him in his word? Do you spend your time praying? These are things that would, that would reflect the affections of your heart. What do you spend your time on? Where are your affections being spent? Christ is preeminent. Have you ordered your life in such a way that it reflects that truth about Christ? And let's pray tonight and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for the truth that we are able to look into your word and see about Christ. We thank you for for the fact that this is not something that you just left us in the dark about. You've given us your word. Christ became a man and lived this out in, in real time and in real life. And you have entered into our situation and changed who we are in our standing before you and in, in our desires and our affections. You've changed it in a fundamental way. Father, I pray that in this sort of state between the time that we become a believer and the time that, that our, our journey is over at the end of our life, that you would use these passages, these opportunities to mold us and to shape us into the image of our creator, into the image of Jesus Christ. We ask all this in, in his name. Amen.